Well, good morning once again. Our scripture reading for uh, today is a Palm Sunday passage, so nothing too out of the ordinary, uh, pretty standard really, um, but uh, from Matthew chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 11. Hear the word of the Lord. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And then the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their cloaks. And he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and the other cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth, Nazareth of Galilee. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Father, we give you thanks for your word, and we recognize that as we we enter into these passages, these passages that, that, that detail your passion, we ask all the more for eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts that are, are sensitive, that are tender, that are inclined to you and capable of receiving your word. And for that to happen, Lord, you've got to work. So work in this place. Show us the beauty of who you are and what you've done for us in Jesus. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. It's been said that when reading Scripture, it can be hard to, you know, what does a passage mean? Trying to understand what is a particular passage, what is it attempting to communicate? That can be a tough task. But one approach that that I've found helpful along the way. This is not original to me at all. But, but one approach that, that I've found helpful is, is to essentially approach the text with two questions in mind. Two questions. The first one. What does the text that I'm reading right now communicate about a people who need saving? What does the text communicate about a people who need saving? And secondly, 
what is it that this text is teaching me about the God who saves? Let me repeat that. What does the text, first of all, teach me about a people who need saving? And secondly, what does the text teach me about the God who saves? I want us to approach the, the passage that we just read with those two questions in mind. In a sermon I've entitled, A, a Fickle People and a Faithful God. And those are actually going to serve as our, our two points for the day. Easy enough, right? First of all, a fickle people. Secondly, a faithful God. Easy enough, right? Let's start with the fickle people. Fads come and go, don't they? It's hard to believe that, that there was a time when men wore powdered wigs and shirts with the, with the ruffles. <laughs> there was a time when when shag carpeting was all the rage. That's what you wanted in your home. Who cares about dust and the layers and layers of dust that's within that? It's the thing to do. There was a time when, when disco music was on the radio. There was a time when, when women wore high-waisted jeans, um, a style that Saturday Night Live would, would refer to in a classic sketch as mom jeans which hilariously have uh, actually come back into style over the last couple of years. Um, Teenagers wearing the mom jeans, because that's the fashion of the day. And speaking of of teenagers, uh, my my time in student ministry uh, taught me to never ever try and use the lingo of the students. Because by the time that it gets to you as an adult, by the time the the adult becomes aware of the expression the students are using, they are no longer cool. In fact, an adult's usage of the lingo is very well what makes it uncool. And so, just stop it, word to the wise parents. Um, but with all of these, you know, all of these fads, they're, they're incredibly popular, that is, until they're not. I mean, things that we had to have eventually lose their charm. Expressions that were once so, so clever are now lame. Clothes that were so fashionable are given away, or even they become the object of ridicule. People, actors, musicians, movie stars, friends, spouses, that we value and appreciate at one point, we can later grow tired of them, right? I mean, think, of, think about politicians for a moment. We, we, you know, politicians um, and their approval ratings, one day it's up, next day it's down, next day it's maybe back up again. Perhaps that has something to do with a position they've taken or an initiative they're supporting or, or leadership that they've exercised in a crisis. It's also possible it has nothing whatsoever to do with them. The world around them has changed, and now what, what they were doing all along is, is perceived as a positive, when before it very well may have been a negative. I mean, we're so susceptible to our opinions changing, so much so that, that I was reading about this, and this is not to pick one side or the other politically, please don't hear that, but because both sides are, are, are doing this with your Facebook feed. It's not direct, but, but there's, I mean, this is the way you influence elections. All of a sudden, I'm seeing things, and it's shaping me, it's changing my opinions, and it, it's cultivating something within me. That, that wasn't there before. My point is this. For whatever reason, our opinions on almost anything 
can change over time. They can change even at the drop of a hat. As Frank alluded to, the passage that that we read a moment ago is often referred to as the the triumphal entry. Jesus is coming into Jerusalem in the days that, that preceded the Passover. And the response to his arrival? Sheer elation. I mean, the translation of, of verse 10 tells us that the city was, was stirred up, but, but the actual word could be used to describe an earthquake. That's how electric this city was. There is so much anticipation. There's so much excitement with this prophet, Jesus of Nazareth, coming to town. The people are rolling out the red carpet for him with their cloaks on the ground. They're waving palm branches in the air. Why? Why are they so excited? Well, the reason why can actually be understood if we sort of drill down into what's being chanted. They're referring to Jesus as the the son of David, and they're making a plea from Psalm 118. That's why we use that, that, that passage throughout our service. They're quoting Psalm 118, Hosanna, which means... Save us. Save us, please. Save us now. This is not some sort of, yes, hey, save us. Like these are people in the midst of desperation asking for salvation. But as far as what are they longing to be saved from? Well, it, to them, it couldn't have been any clearer. Save us from Rome. Save us from this nation who is occupying our land. From these people who are exploiting us with merciless taxes. And from these these soldiers who are abusing us in every way imaginable. Save us, son of David. In other words, be the king that will restore us to the glory days. Be the king that will make Israel great again. Fix this mess that we're in. That, that's what all this pomp and, and circumstance is about. And yet, over the course of the week, day by day, Jesus' public approval rating is going to take a nosedive significantly. So much so that the people who yelled, Hosanna, save us, son of David, on Sunday, by the time Friday rolls around, they're yelling, crucify him. What happened? What happened during this week? How is it possible for someone to take such a drastic nose dive? Well, nothing. Nothing happened. Nothing that is of, of any real, real significance. I mean, you, you can read what Jesus was up to. He cursed a fig tree. It died. That's kind of cool, right? Um, <laughs> And he taught. He taught a lot of things. He talked a lot of, said a lot of inflammatory things. He even turned over tables in, in the temple. But here's the thing. None of that was directed at Rome. He doesn't take up arms. He doesn't gather the militia. He doesn't get the plan together to overthrow the government. Instead, he starts calling out Israel's practices. Israel's leadership. 
Israel's hypocrisy. And it becomes obvious that he is not the Savior they hoped he would be. And therefore, as his usefulness disappears, he's essentially discarded. In the same way that powdered wigs, shag carpet, disco, mom jeans eventually lost their usefulness and were discarded. Later in the week, Jesus will will literally be placed in front of a mob beside a guy named Barabbas. Barabbas, who the the Scripture tells us, had killed someone in the insurrection. This guy had literally taken up arms against Rome and was being held as a prisoner. And, And given the choice between the violent insurgent and the guy who rode in on a donkey... The mob will choose Barabbas over Jesus. Why? Because at the end of the day, Barabbas has got a lot more of a chance of saving us than this guy. I mean, this guy just turned out to be a lot of hot air. In fact, we, we very well may need to be saved from him. So what then does this passage tell us about a people who need saving? Back to our original question. What does this passage tell us about a people who need saving? I think at least a couple of things. First, what we see in the passage is that there is a desperate need for a Savior. A desperate need that that we all have. I mean, this experience of, of longing for someone or for something to come in and to fix our mess is universal. A couple of weeks back, a, a book was released by a guy named David Zoll. Uh, I would encourage you to check it out. Um, It's entitled Seculosity. Seculosity, subtitle, How Career, Parenting, Technology, Food, Politics, and Romance Became Our New Religion and What to Do About It. And the premise of the book is is that all of us are looking for salvation. We're all looking for something that will fix us, something that will rescue us, something that will lead to what what the author will refer to as enoughness, that need for salvation from the guilt and the shame I feel, the the, the need for salvation from a a purposeless existence, the the need for salvation from the struggles that we're encountering, that, that need for salvation from the fact that whether we want to recognize it or deal with it or not, that we're all going to die one day. That, that stuff doesn't go away just because our, our culture has moved away from Christianity or moved away from, quote-unquote, religion. The author's premise is, is that now it's just being redirected. It's just being redirected in the way in which we do life. It's all right. Listen carefully... And you'll hear that the word enough is everywhere, especially when it comes to anxiety, loneliness, exhaustion, and division that plagues our current moment to such tragic proportions. You'll hear people scrambling to be successful enough, happy enough, thin enough, wealthy enough, influential enough, desired enough. Charitable enough, woke enough, good enough. And so, 
to gain this enoughness that we're craving, we appeal. We appeal to romance. We appeal to technology, food. We take pictures of our food. Look, I'm eating like this awesome, beautiful meal. And that's if you do that, praise Jesus. That's great. But um, that's awesome. We're all doing it. It's the point. We're all, we all have got our thing that, that we're trying to do to pursue so that we can be of value, be of substance. We can justify, to use religious language, ourselves. We can save ourselves. And so if we're all looking for something to give us this unattainable sense of enoughness, it begs the question, what is it for you? What is it for me? But, no, I, and to be clear, I'm, I'm not talking about what we might feel some compulsion to say. We're in church. You know, we've got to say the right thing. I'm not talking about that. But I'm talking about what's going on in our heads, and in our hearts, and, and in our schedules, and in our bank accounts. What's the thing about our lives, that if we could just fix that, it'll be okay. Life, life will be okay once I get that fixed. What, what are we looking for salvation from? And what are we leaning on to get it? Or, or, or let's, put, let's look at this from a Christian standpoint, the vantage point maybe of the people who are in this passage. What are we looking to Jesus from to save us? I mean, what, what is it about our lives that we are so desperate for Jesus to come in and to intervene and to do something to save us and make it all okay? What is it for you? Perhaps you know exactly what it is. I, I doubt that it's Rome. If it is, I'd, I'd love to hear about that. Um, but perhaps it's a burden, an obstacle, a person, a situation. A source of opposition, fear, and illness. But whatever it is, you're exhausted with it and you are desperate for God to come in and save you. You ain't got a palm branch in your hand necessarily, but you might as well be crying out Hosanna with all the desperation that these people are crying out in light of their situation with Rome. Legitimately so. I don't know the pain you brought into this room today, but I suspect that all of us come here longing for something, longing for some struggle to be alleviated, something painful in our life to be fixed. But there's something else that our passage teaches us about sinners who, who need to be saved. Because this passage has to be understood in light of what's coming the rest of the week, right? Which shows that our quest for something or someone to save us can play itself out in some really ugly ways. Because this longing for our problems to be solved, problems, again, which, which are real and painful, and the longing to be liberated from them makes all the sense in the world. But in that quest for salvation, what can get exposed is just how fickle our hearts can be. What the events of Holy Week teach us is that there is a real temptation when things don't turn out as we hope to begin to look for salvation elsewhere. To discard Jesus and, and find a Barabbas that can get things done. 
Perhaps, I mean, you can think of a noteworthy time of that in your own life. Maybe God's prayed, but, but you feel let down. And maybe you didn't yell, crucify him, but, but putting your trust in him is a real challenge. But here's the thing. That, that may be sort of a, a kind of a specific time. It's kind of etched in your mind. But, but isn't there a sense in which that's the reality of every day? Isn't that reality always up and running for us to a certain degree? I mean, aren't we on a daily basis tempted to look for other saviors than Jesus to rescue us from the hurts and the struggles we're experiencing? That temptation's real. That was the impulse of this crowd to praise Jesus one minute and then discard him the next. But it brings us to our second question. Okay, if, if that's what... What does the passage teach us about sinners who need to be saved? The second question, what does the passage teach about a God who does the saving? Here's where we find our second point for the morning, which is a faithful God. The good news of Palm Sunday is despite the fact that, that we are so capable of being inconsistent in our devotion to Jesus. Jesus is fully committed to us. That Jesus is fully committed to you. Jesus knows full well what happens to prophets in Jerusalem who tell the establishment to turn back to God and repent. I mean, at one point he makes the statement, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. He's under no disillusionment about what he's doing here. And Jesus knows full well the condition of our hearts. In John chapter 2, Jesus is gonna, I mean, the, the text says that Jesus would not give himself over to the crowds because he knew what was in a man. He knows how quick we are to turn on him in our moments of desperation. He knows our frailty. He knows our inconsistency. He knows our struggle to trust him our willingness to find salvation elsewhere. And finally, Jesus, being God, he knows full well how this story is about to play out. He's going to be misunderstood by these people. He's going to be mocked by these people. He's going to be slandered by these people. He's going to be abandoned by these people. He's going to go through physical torture, mental anguish, emotional exhaustion at the hands of these people. And knowing that, you know what Jesus does? He rides towards it. He moves towards the city that's going to kill him. He enters into it. And as he approaches it, according to Luke's account of this, he weeps over it. He weeps over Jerusalem, the city that's going to kill him. And though this is often referred to as the the triumphal entry, we hear that. If you think about it, there's not really that much triumphal about it. Okay, I mean, so, so Matthew's quoting from Zechariah 9, which is really interesting because the quote that Matthew has right there, in, in Zechariah 9, there's the word triumphant. You saw it in your call to worship. Matthew doesn't include that, though. He doesn't include that part in his quote because as far as transportation is concerned... This doesn't really feel all that triumphant. He's riding on a donkey. And, and when you hear donkey, don't think like, you know, 
sort of kind of like a horse, but just a little different. Uh, think pony. Think of man riding on a kid's bicycle. It's as humble as it gets. It's as non-triumphant as it gets. And the reason he does this, the reason that Matthew doesn't mention the word triumphant, is obvious. Because this riding on a donkey business communicates something about what Jesus is here to accomplish and the type of king that he is going to be. I mean, consider for a moment the fact that, that at the exact same time that this is going on, there's somebody else entering into Jerusalem, a man by the name of Pontius Pilate. Well, what happened during the, the Passover is that the Romans would come from, from their capital city in the area, and they would come in because the Passover, all these people are there, and so the Romans would show up to make sure that these people know, yeah, you do your little religious, great, y'all have, it, have fun, but realize something, we're in charge. And Pontius Pilate, when he rode into Jerusalem that day, I can guarantee you he was not riding in on a donkey. He was riding in on a war horse. He was riding in communicating the fact that, that, that he was in charge that he was powerful and that he was strong and that he was capable of putting you in your place should you get out of line. And the contrast couldn't be any more stark. Martin Luther describes this juxtaposition this way. He rides no stallion, which is a war animal, and he comes with no fearful pomp and power, but sits on a donkey which, again, is no war animal, but which is ready for burdens of work that will help human beings. And thereby he shows that he does not come to terrify people, to drive or oppress them, but to help them, to carry their burdens and take them on himself. And so while Jesus is the son of David, they got that one right. And while he is worthy of all this praise and adoration, they got that right too. And while he is the one to whom hosannas should be raised, got that one right, yes. Jesus' transportation makes it clear that he's, he's got a different salvation project in mind than the one these people envision. Jesus rides in a donkey because a donkey is a beast of burden. A donkey is a work animal. And Jesus has work to do this week. Begs the question, what, what work is he doing? I mean, it seems obvious that Rome is their biggest problem, their biggest threat, their biggest need. I mean, if Jesus, if the son of David riding in... If number one on the list is not kick out the Romans, then, then what are we doing here? What are we doing to not take down Rome? It's, it's like a doctor more concerned about someone's allergies than an open wound. You know, it's like, what are we doing? Does Jesus not care about these people's pain? About what's being done to them? Well, of course he cares. He cares so much, in fact, that, that he enters into their pain with them. You know, over the course of this week, he will experience the 
full measure of life under Roman rule. Beyond that, he will enter into a great deal of the pain associated with with the human experience. Jesus is going to go and experience firsthand the problems that, that you and I experience, that you and I potentially brought in here today. You ever felt despised and rejected before? You ever felt abandoned by your friends and alone? Ever felt betrayed? Ever felt misunderstood? People dissecting your words and trying to trip you up? Ever felt physical pain? Mental anguish? Emotional turmoil? You ever been in need of help and no one come? Ever been humiliated? Jesus is going to enter into all that and more this week. He's going to place himself in the midst of the human experience. He's going to identify with us. Does he care? Absolutely he cares. But he's going to do more than that. He's not just going to identify with our pain. He's going to conquer our biggest foe our greatest enemy. The salvation that Jesus comes to bring, he's going to go deeper than Rome. He's going to go deeper than all of the problems that we experience as real and as potentially devastating as they are. They're actually just a symptom of a much deeper problem, which is our sin, our rebellion, our brokenness, our hostility towards God, our alienation from God. That is our deepest problem. That is what we see here. That Jesus could not just go and take on Rome shows that there are bigger fish to fry, so to speak. Not to say it's okay. Not to say it's good. Not to say he didn't care about it. But Jesus is going to go deeper. He's going to solve the biggest problem once and for all. He's coming to do what only he can do, which is to conquer sin and death by getting to the root of the problem at great cost to himself. How does he do it? Well, today, you know, Palm Sunday, we're talking about a lot about kingship. Jesus is king. Amen. Love. God the, God the uncreated one will be sung in my house all day. Okay? He is king for... I can't, I, just get in our heads. Everyone's singing it. That's just... just here it is. Um, we're talking about king. Jesus is king. Yes. We see in our, in our passage, verse 11, who is this Jesus? He's a prophet. This prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. He's king. He's a prophet. But there's another role that Jesus is going to take on this week. Yes, he's prophet. Yes, he's king. But this week, he's also going to be a priest. And the role of the priest is to intervene on behalf of the people. To serve as a mediator between God and man. To offer sacrifices for the people. To make atonement for the people for their sin. So that they could enjoy a right and restored relationship with the Creator. And so when Jesus goes to the cross, there is a real sense in which he is going because Rome and Israel worked together to get him there. 
And at the very same time, there's a real sense that Jesus is laying down his life of his own accord. I lay down my life. He says in John chapter 10. And he does this for people who are faithless, who are fickle. He does this because he loves his people. He loves the hurting. He loves those who struggle. He loves those who are experiencing pain and suffering. He loves sinners. He loves the fickle. And he's been faithful even when we're not. He's faithful towards the faithless. And by his sacrifice, he provides salvation that we need more than any other salvation, as real as our other needs are. Salvation from sin and death, from the punishment that we deserve through his perfect life, his atoning death, and his glorious resurrection. And he's promised to one day return. In the book of Revelation, we see all this imagery, and so much of it, really connects with what we just read in Matthew 21. Because Jesus is promising in Revelation to make all things new. To fix all our problems. To usher in a new heaven and a new earth. To ride in not on a donkey this time, but on a horse. As a conquering king who saved his people. He promises to wipe every tear from our eye. Because he will fix this mess and usher in a new Jerusalem. Chapter 7 of Revelation even says that we'll be waving our palm branches. For our king has saved us. And that is your future. Even in the midst of pain, even in the midst of struggle, even in the midst of this longing for Hosanna, that there is a real hope because God is faithful. He keeps his promises. And he calls us to trust him. So let me pray for us. Gracious Father, we confess that that we struggle to trust you. That that we struggle to believe your promises. And yet, you love us despite that. You pursue us despite that. You ride towards us despite that. We ask that you would give us faith to trust you all the more uh, and to believe your promises are true and believe that you are king and that you are good and you've accomplished everything necessary for us to have a right and restored relationship with you. You've solved our biggest problem and you continue as as our king to reign and and, and care for us. do so, so well. Fathers, we come to this table, bless our time, remind us of these truths, meet with us, encourage us, strengthen us, nourish us, we pray. All in Jesus' name. Amen.